MacCast, Sunday, July 16th, 2023. This episode of the MacCast is brought to you by ZocDoc. More on them later in the show. Hey, Mac Geeks, it's time for your MacCast, the show for Mac Geeks by Mac Geeks. I'm Adam, and this is the show where we discuss all things Macintosh. How you doing? Welcome back to the MacCast. Glad to be back here with you for another week of hints, tips, tricks, and all the goings-ons in the Apple and Mac community. How are you doing? I hope you are having a great day. Things are pretty good around here at MacCast HQ. Sitting here looking over the show notes, and we have uh, quite a few things to get into this week. We're going to be talking a little bit about Apple displays. We're going to get into um, some of the latest updates on what it's looking like for the release of Apple Vision Pro. A lot of stuff going on there. Got some information about the next iPhone, uh, some Apple Watch news, and Mac shipments. Also, a little security update uh, to discuss. And that's going to kind of round out the news for this week. And then we're going to get into some follow-up from some previous episodes. I have some feedback on a HomeKit question. We're also going to get into a question about RAM and the new Macs. Uh, Talk about relocated items and what those mean. And I have a cool thing of the moment for you this week. A new product that I picked up and started using. And that's going to round out this episode of the MacCast. But I say that we just jump right in and talk a little bit about Apple displays. We had a report this week from Bloomberg's Mark Gurman. Actually, he said in a recent newsletter that Apple is working on multiple new versions of displays, specifically specifically updates to its Pro Display XDR and 27-inch studio displays. I think that's not too surprising. Uh, Those have been out for a while now, and uh, Apple working on new updates makes a lot of sense. But the interesting tidbit in this latest coverage from Gurman is that the new displays from Apple might also come with a feature that allow them to work as smart home displays, when they're not in active use. The idea is that they would have a dedicated chip and software, likely based on iOS, that would allow them to display widgets and information in a low-power mode when they are basically off or asleep. Yeah, You're not using them, right? And you might know that Apple's already dedicated an A13 chip in the 27-inch studio display, and it has its kind of own little operating system. But that is used while the display is active. It's used for, like, the video camera and a lot of the center stage stuff and also um, for the audio processing. So what's different here really is that the display is going to be doing something when it's essentially in standby mode. And... uh, What's being discussed to me sounds a lot like an expansion of the new standby feature that's coming to the iPhone in iOS 17 that Apple announced and showed off at Worldwide Developer Conference. This is the feature where your iPhone, when it's attached to power and in a landscape orientation, can display widgets and and what have you. What was interesting about these recent reports on Apple adding this kind of functionality to a full-size display to your desktop displays or to their desktop displays rather is that it would I imagine need to also have some kind of multi-touch functionality a, a feature and a technology that Apple has avoided with displays a lot of people have wanted this on Apple laptops for a long time uh, because without that, I guess the widgets would just be informational, and I I, I, I guess they could go that route. But one of the big, big cool things that was talked about at Worldwide Developer Conference with these new widgets and standby mode and stuff on the iPhone is that widgets can have interactivity. So you can interact with them even while your phone is basically asleep. And I think you'd want to bring similar technology or the same kind of technology to a full-size version of a smart display. And to me, it's a smart display, a smart home display, something you're going to use to get information, 
uh, maybe your calendar, notes, reminders, those sorts of things, and also probably control your HomeKit devices, you're going to want to have that be interactive, and you're not going to have to want to go over and touch your trackpad or your mouse to kind of interact with that. These are meant to be quick sort of uh, instant interactions that you can do right there as you're looking at the information. Now, Gurman didn't say that that technology was coming to the display, but I would imagine Apple's having is likely playing around with that kind of thing, and it would be definitely a kind of game changer in terms of Apple's approach to displays, and it would beg the question, are they going to bring that same kind of technology to their notebooks at some point? Are we finally seeing that kind of convergence of a lot of the iPad functionality and the laptop functionality into a single device. Again, this report is specifically about Apple's updated desktop displays, so I don't want to bring confusion to that, but it does get you really thinking about that sort of thing. Now, as far as when these new displays might be announced from Apple, German's predictions are the new smart displays could start to service in 2024 at the earliest. I would imagine it'd be more towards the back half of the year, although he didn't specifically say that either. We're going to have to wait and see, but I'm curious, what do you think about having uh, these new kind of smart displays? And we've kind of heard this rumor in various forms too recently, right? You probably remember we talked about there was this idea that Apple might develop kind of a low cost or kind of iPad without a lot of the iPad functionality. It'd be just simply meant to be something you can mount on the wall and use as a smart display in your home. So it sounds like Apple's playing around with a lot of ideas. Not sure if some of these rumors are getting uh, conflated and, and sort of mixed together, but definitely there's some R&D going on and we're starting to hear about it. There seem to be more and more reports that are making it look like getting your hands on the first generation of Apple's Vision Pro might be harder than grabbing a Wonka golden ticket. Yeah, it's not looking good, folks. And as a person who's really interested in probably picking up the first generation of the Vision Pro, I'm starting to question if I'm going to actually be able to do that. And there seems to be kind of two issues going on that we're hearing hearing about right now. One of the first problems is the number of units that might be available at launch. There have been multiple multiple reports already that Apple is facing manufacturing and supply chain issues related mainly to a lot of the high-end components that are going into the Vision Pro. If you watched the announcement and you saw Worldwide Developer Conference, you know this thing has a lot of brand new tech in it, and specifically one of the issues is those high-resolution 4K micro OLED displays. The Financial Times and others have noted this past week that Apple has called for drastic cuts, quote unquote, in their production forecasts for launch. Uh, The numbers are ranging depending upon what report you look at, but Apple expects now it's sounding like to produce 400,000 headsets in 2024 when they come out. And there are even some component suppliers reportedly saying that Apple's asked them to scale back to just 130,000 to 150,000 units. Now, I would assume I would assume with those reports that we're talking about suppliers of components that where there might be one or two suppliers. So 400,000 sounds like it might be the target originally, just to put this in perspective, originally a lot of earlier reports said that Apple was targeting one, uh, one million units in the first year of production. So 400,000, 40%, that's drastically scaled back from what we've been hearing originally. There have also been reports that Apple is also already delaying the launch of a lower cost version. Uh, Many folks are hoping that Apple might come out in 2025 with another model, say like a Vision versus the Vision Pro with a lower entry price point. Um, They've been exploring reportedly how to get production costs down on that. And apparently right now they really don't want to compromise on using lower, say, mini LED displays versus the micro OLED displays in the headset. And that means that if they're already having issues producing and getting the costs down on the current ones, it might take a while longer before those come, become, come to a place where they can mass produce them at the levels they're going to need and get the price point down to include them in a lower cost version of the of the device. So that's likely what's leading to the decision to delay the launch 
of that product. So if you were hoping to get a, a lower cost or see a lower cost Vision Pro, uh, you might be waiting a little bit while a little a little <coughs> a whittle, <laughs> excuse me, a little while longer for that. And finally, on the production numbers, Apple has reportedly tasked LuxShare as the headset's assembly partner, and that's the sole partner. And they were tasked with getting production up to 18 million units in the first few years. There's also so also some analyst estimates from Canalis predicting that Apple could have a user base of 20 million people for the headset in the first five years. So it's going to ramp up pretty quickly once they get sort of sort of some of these bugs figured out. It sounds like, and it's sounding like it's going to be a very popular product in the long run but again expect at launch that it's going to be a little bit hard to get your hands on a headset so that's the first issue is the number of units that are going to be available the second possible delay in getting a headset in the first round at launch could be the buying process bloomberg started talking about some rumors they had heard from inside apple some of the training that they're doing uh, with employees or putting together for the launch of the headset and saying that the rollout and buying process could be limited at first, at least initially, to Apple stores only. They're describing this launch as, quote, Apple's most logistically complex rollout ever. And part of the big reason for this seems to be the custom fitting of the headset itself so that they can ensure you get the proper light seal, the proper uh, headband. And then if you do use prescription or have prescription glasses, that you get the correct lenses that go in your device. And right now it's sounding like you're probably going to need an Apple Store appointment to be able to even purchase the headset and that Apple might start only with stores in major cities like L.A. and New York first and then roll it out to other locations later. So I think this could also be going hand in hand with some of the supply chain issues so they can kind of do a slow rollout and control the launch of the product and the supply. The supply is going to be kind of an issue. It's also been mentioned, uh, you know, the headset is launching first in the U.S. and it's supposed to launch in other countries later in the year around the globe. That worldwide launch we're also hearing could be a little bit staggered with Apple's picking specific countries it sounds like uk and canada might be next followed by other countries so that's somewhat to a similar rollout that apple did uh with the iphone and i think the ipod back in the day so it's going to be an interesting launch the other factor that's coming into play here is just the sheer combination of custom pieces that need to be in this and you would imagine what they have to stock in an apple store so you have the prescription lenses you have the headbands including the rear headband and the top headband you have the light seals all of those things could add to supply issues at specific store locations because you need that custom combination of all three so you might have a thing where you go to an apple store they have the right set of Zeiss prescription lenses for you. They have the headband that fits you, but maybe they're out of stock on the size and shape of light seal that you actually need. So this one's going to be really, really tricky. So, you know, if you're prepping yourself to buy one of these things, expect that they're going to get be hard to get a hold of. It's probably going to need a an appointment at the Apple store. Um, it does sound like they're they are developing also an online process that's going to use a face scanning app so they can kind of do all this virtually. You'd be able to upload your prescription to an app for the prescription lenses, but it's not clear right now from the reports that I'm seeing if the in-store and online purchasing processes are going to be launched simultaneously. It's actually sounding like it's not going to be that they're going to want this sort of custom fitting process. And this is something that they had available and did with the Apple Watch as well. If you remember when they launched that, you could go in and kind of have this custom appointment and get fit with the right band and stuff like that. This is going to be even more complex than that. So somewhat feeling too, like I remember Google Glass, right? Didn't you have to go have this special appointment for that Apple doing something similar? And I know that's going to probably cause some frustration. It's probably going to cause some uh, issues and they're going to probably have to work out the kinks. So just expect that if you're looking to get an Apple Vision Pro, that that is going to be going on. 
Some other things around Vision Pro that we're hearing, we're also hearing that Apple is still reportedly working on and finalizing the design of the top strap. This is something a lot of people didn't know about because they didn't really show it at Worldwide Developer Conference. But in addition to the band that goes around the back of your head, there's kind of this optional uh, strap that goes over the top of your head that can help uh, make it more comfortable, I would imagine, for longer term use. Uh, kind of take some of the weight off and stuff on, I like that. So Apple's still working on that design. I don't know if that's also a piece that would need to be custom fitted uh, to your head size and head shape and stuff like that. That hasn't really been talked about too much. So that is another, you know, again, thing that could add to the complexity of this customization. And then uh, on the technology side, we heard an inter- interesting report this week from the Korea Herald that the Apple Vision Pro is going to use a specialized version of DRAM supplied by SK Hynix. Um, it's designed to actually support the R1 chip in the Vision Pro, which is the processor that handles all of the data from the sensors and cameras and, and those sorts of things. Apple needs a very low latency, one gigabit uh, DRAM chip, and it's something called low latency wide I.O., and it's designed with extra input and output pins and uses a special packaging method called fan-out wafer-level packaging. And this patch- packaging actually lets the chip be attached directly to the R1 as an integrated unit and allows them to double the processing speed of uh, of that package. So that's going to really help with performance. But again, here we have an instance where highly customized components, these are highly fine-tuned, and you have to imagine if there's any production or quality issues with that, that's going to impact the overall supply of the device. And then finally, an interesting bit of information from Mark Gurman over on on Bloomberg about Apple's choice for not having any kind of hand controllers used with the headset. They reportedly, Apple reportedly had explored kind of a unique finger-worn device, and I think we heard some early rumors about that, that Apple kind of had a ring or some sort of thing that would go on your finger. Um, They also reportedly even considered adding support for third-party controllers like the ones used for the HTC Vision, and then ultimately decided that uh, hand tracking and eye movements without an accessory was a much more elegant solution. And I kind of agree with that from the perspective of of just being natural, right? Not having these things that you have to hold in your hand and just being able to use hand gestures and and eye movements to kind of control everything feels a lot more, I guess, in, in, in my opinion, kind of human, right? And everybody who's used the headset or had a chance to use the Vision Pro and get that demo says that it feels really, really natural. You immediately kind of get get it. Doesn't have too big of a learning curve. And so that seems to work to have worked out positively. But what hasn't been addressed is more of the VR side where I think you're going to have a lot of games and gaming. And it'll be interesting to see if Apple sticks to their guns regarding that because some games might be a lot harder to adapt or pull off without a controller, right? A lot of them very much rely on controllers. So if a developer is developing a game for a competing headset, they're going to have all those controls built in. And we've seen Apple add with like Apple Arcade support for game controllers from Xbox and PlayStation. So I have a feeling they could go that route in the future if it turns out that a lot of developers are complaining about not having access to hand controllers that work with the Vision Pro. So it'll be interesting again to see if Apple kind of continues that route. But I have a feeling at some point in the future, I don't know if it's going to be in the first couple of years or years later, I think we will see controller support come to the Vision Pro or the Vision headsets at some point. I'm not sure exactly why, but this week, for some reason, there seems to have been a number of reports and a lot of attention given to what color the next version of the iPhone 15 Pro is going to come in. This was something that 9to5Mac talked about, I think, a while back. Uh, They expect the iPhone 15 Pro models to come this year in a deep red color. And um, this is something that Apple's been doing with the Pro model the last couple of years, right? We would have the standard colors, the white, the black, 
and then some sort of yearly color, kind of custom color. So we've had a couple different blues, the green. Uh, the last one was that deep purple. And so they were expecting deep red this year. And a report came out this week from a reliable leaker on the Chinese site Weibo or Weibo uh, that seems to back this up. But then uh, Mac Rumors also had a report from a Twitter leaker known as Unknowns21 that the new color is going to be a new dark blue color. So there's a little bit of a debate about what color uh, this year's iPhone 15 Pro will come in. I personally feel like deep red would be the way to go. I think we've already had a couple of different blues, and so it'd be nice to really get a a, a new color. There's also uh, different colors and new colors for potentially the iPhone and iPhone Plus models. Um, we're hearing about a potential kind of mint green. I think it already comes in like a blue and a pink and a yellow. Um, but we're also hearing that potentially there's Apple's testing some new versions of a light blue and a new kind of pink color option. I guess the, the one that I'm calling pink this year is really supposed to be purple, but I think it has more of that lighter hue. They tend to be these more pastel colors on... Um, on the uh, on the straight iPhone iPhone Plus models, and uh, we also often get the product red, but also not always at launch. But anyway, a lot of attention being given to colors. I don't know if you care about iPhone colors and what might be coming up, um, but if you do and have theories or have colors that you'd like to see Apple do, let me know about it. Shoot me some feedback, maccast at gmail dot com. Also on iPhone News, analyst Jeff Poo over at Haitong International Tech Research says that the iPhone 15 models should enter mass production here in August. So coming up with Apple looking to produce about 84 million units by the end of 2023. For comparison, that would be up about 12% from the number of iPhone 14 units Apple produced last year. So Apple may be expecting the iPhone 15 to do a little bit better this year in terms of sales. He's also reporting that he expects the Pro Max model to have a higher starting price point than the iPhone 14 Pro Max, which currently starts at US $1,099. So doesn't specifically talk about what the price increase would in it would be. I would imagine it would go up maybe a hundred, two hundred dollars, something like that. And the main reason is because this year, unlike past years, it's not just going to be screen size that's the different. We're expecting some camera upgrades that are going to be exclusive to the Pro Max, specifically that periscope tele telephoto lens, which will allow for a larger optical zoom up to six times. We're hearing is likely the route Apple's going to go. I think some of these can even go up to a ten. MX optical zoom, um, but that is expected to be exclusive to the Pro model, and that could drive up the price a bit. So if you're in the market for that, just be aware that uh, you might be expecting that this year. One last questionable, questionable rumor around this year's iPhones are that they could contain significantly increased battery sizes. The rumor is led allegedly from a Foxconn worker, and I saw this reported over on Mac Rumors. The claim is that the iPhone 15 will feature an 18% larger battery, the iPhone 15 Plus and 15 Pro a 14% larger battery, and the iPhone 15 Pro Max a 12% larger battery. That could mean slightly thicker iPhones if that's the route Apple goes. Again, this source is not necessarily one that we've heard a lot from in the past. It's a little bit iffy. Obviously, Apple always wants to increase and improve battery life in their devices. And uh, if it turns out to be true, these would be uh, a nice bump in this year's models. We have a little bit of Apple Watch Ultra news this week for you. According to Ming-Chi Kuo, he says that the next generation of the Apple Watch Ultra, the Apple Watch Ultra 2, for lack of a better word, could come with 3D printed parts. In a report, he says that, quote, Apple is actively adopting 3D printing technology, um, yeah, I assume in their manufacturing, and specifically calls out Apple planning to use the technology for some of the 
some of the titanium mechanical parts in the next Apple Watch Ultra. And currently, uh, mechanical parts like the digital crown, the side button, the action button are CNC machined out of titanium, but the 3D printing process could allow Apple to make the uh, components faster and cheaper, so bringing down Apple's production costs and allowing them to produce more components more quickly. Uh, I don't know a lot about those technologies, about 3D printing technology, specifically in metal. And uh, I'm kind of curious if you'd even be able to really know the difference in the final part. And so anybody who kind of works in that industry, sort of the industrial side of 3D printing and stuff like that, that might be in our community. If you know, you know, what are, are there any sort of, physical differences between a CNC machined metal part versus a 3D printed part. I know, you know, in terms of plastics and stuff like that, you have things like the scan lines and and, and those sorts of things, uh, depending upon, you know, how a component is 3D printed. Um, I don't know about durability, all those other things. So I'd be curious to know, uh, you know, I would imagine from Apple's perspective, they have very, very high standards in terms of the quality of their components. And I have to imagine that there would be everything would be pretty comparable in terms of those two processes, at least to pass muster with Apple. But I'm I am kind of curious to know about that. Another Apple Watch component that we've been hearing about for years is uh, the display. And Apple has been working on and we've been talking about micro LED technology uh, coming to Apple products at some point in the future. The the idea is that Apple Watch would probably be the per- first place that Apple does this because the displays are very hard to produce and manufacture very costly and to get them scaled up and at a large size would be much more difficult than, say, doing an Apple Watch display. So it's been thought for years that the Apple Watch would be the first product to get this technology from Apple, and it likely still will be, but once again, we're hearing that it's probably going to be further off than we're expecting. A TrendForce report came out this week claiming that Apple is planning on targeting mass production of a micro-LED Apple Watch display for May of 2025. Um, so you know, it's not going to be happening in the next year, maybe even further out. And I do want to point out a little bit of confusion that has kind of entered our community between display terminology. So this is a micro LED display, which does not exist in any Apple product today. Um, Some people had recently reported that um, the Apple Vision Pro was going to have a micro LED display. That's not accurate. The Vision Pro has a micro OLED display which is a very different technology in, in in terms. So it's not micro LED and that's been mislabeled or misused a couple different places in the past. I may have even actually done that mistakenly. So if you catch me on that, go ahead and feel free to call me out. Um, but uh, micro OLED in the Apple Vision Pro, micro LED, something that Apple's looking at as a future technology that has not been released in an Apple product yet. Uh, finally, uh, OLED technology, <laughs> which is in the Apple Watch, is currently expected to make its way to the iPad next year. Apple could release OLED versions of the iPad Pro 11 and iPad Pro 12.9 inch sometime in 2024. Apple's also hoping to bring OLED displays to their laptops, but reports right now are indicating that that actually might not happen until 2027. So we're way, way out there. And anytime we talk about rumors that far out, specifically with technology, I'm a little bit leery to discuss it because, you know, a lot of things can change between 2023 as we sit here now in 2027 in terms of manufacturing processes and technologies and and those sorts of things. So, you know, Apple could completely skip OLED if they crack the code on, say, uh, you know, micro LED, and we could end up with micro LED devices across the board. So, you know, I take all these things with a grain of salt. It's just what's happening currently. And, uh, you know, I bring them to you so we can have that discussion. But, uh, you know, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't bank on any rumors that are sort of predicted for 2027 and later.
Some good news for Apple regarding Mac shipments. According to the latest numbers from IDC, Apple was the only top five company to kind of buck the recent trend and see year-over-year PC sales growth in the second quarter of 2023. Apple was actually able to increase Mac sales by 10%, shipping an estimated 5.3 million Macs versus 4.8 million in the same quarter last year. Now, my guess is the release of updated M2 models helped out a little bit in this area, although uh, updates to the Mac Studio and the MacBook Air for M2 did not come till very, very late in the quarter. So I don't think those factored into, into the numbers whatsoever. But uh, very nice to see that Apple is uh, increasing Mac sales while others uh, are not having as much luck. And that's not to say <laughs> that I feel good that the PC industry as a whole is kind of declining sort of post-COVID, but it is good uh, that Apple is, is able to keep sales up. And I think you know, rolling out new chips and new models and stuff like that does really, really help with that. Um, for the fall, we are also expecting to see some M3 updates kind of sticking with that trend of releasing new technologies and new processors on a pretty decent clip or d pretty decent schedule. Uh, there are possible candidates that could be the M3 iMac, the M3 13-inch MacBook Air, and an M3 macbook pro uh, as far as what the processor will look like we're expecting that apple's m3 will have similar core counts in terms of the gpu and cpu but they're going to be manufactured using a new three nanometer process that will allow them to offer enhanced performance and efficiency so better battery life uh, cooler running and also faster performance typically what we've been seeing and i would expect the same is somewhere with a 15 to 20 percent increase over the previous generation sort of m2 chips at least in terms of benchmarks you know real world is always a little bit different um for the M3 iMac, it is looking like, from the rumors that we're hearing, that the design would largely remain the same. Also, the size at 24-inch, and it would just get an updated pro processor. Now, there is a belief, and we've been hearing these rumors, that Apple is working on a larger version of the iMac. I know a lot of people really uh, miss the 27-inch iMac and are looking for a larger model. We've been hearing that Apple is working on display sizes larger than 30 inches, and likely if they do a larger iMac, it's going to probably come in more at like 32 inches, which is going to be amazing. Um, but it is believed that those updates are a ways off. It would likely be 2024 at the earliest, and I would imagine the fall, like that October time frame, before we see an update to uh, the iMac in terms of the actual display size or a new model or redesign of that product. So if you've been kind of in the market for a larger iMac, you're probably going to be waiting uh, a while longer. You know, I think part of that is because Apple can kind of supplement with the updates to the Mac Mini and the Mac Studio, where you can kind of connect your own display. You can get the 27-inch, you know, Apple display if you want, or go with a third-party display. So they do have options for those folks who want something in, an, in a Mac desktop with a display larger than 24 inches. And I think the 24-inch display is kind of that nice sweet spot for the iMac. And, uh, you know, more and more folks are going the laptop route these days. I think Apple doesn't sell quite as many desktops. So there's a lot of factors that go into that decision on, you know, when do we need or come out with a larger display? So despite, you know, our own sort of inclinations of wanting a larger iMac, you know, there's a lot of, I think, technological and economic forces that go into Apple's choice on when to release, you know, an updated iMac. And then finally, in the news for this week, we have a little security update to talk about. Early, early in the week, Apple pushed out a rapid security response system update for macOS, iOS, and iPadOS. It was labeled iOS 16.5.1a, iPadOS 16.5.1a, and macOS Ventura 13.4.1a. And it was pushed out to address an issue in WebKit that could allow for arbitrary code execution, and it was being actively exploited. So Apple 
deemed it, hey, we need to get this update out there quickly. They immediately pushed it out. I think in this case, depending upon your settings, it can also be automatically applied. The problem was that the update actually broke some websites and apps, so Apple had to quickly pull the update. Um, so if you experienced that earlier in the week, that might have been a little bit frustrating. They did uh, recover, though, and quickly later release an update um, iOS 16.5.1c, iPadOS 16.5.1c, and macOS 13.4.1c, which fixed and addressed the issue with the uh, original update and also addressed, of course, the original exploit. So you're going to want to make sure that you've updated your iOS, iPadOS, and macOS to that very latest version so that you can protect their, yourself from this active exploit. Uh, so make sure you run software update, check your system, and make sure you have the very latest C versions of the update. And then one other little cool little side note uh, related to Apple OS updates and something that I think is a really cool example of how Apple continues to support older products uh, where a lot of companies kind of really abandon them is in the upcoming macOS 13.5 update, which is currently in beta testing and is expected to come out later this month. It was noted in the release notes by a number of sources that Apple has, quote, fixed an issue where the iPod Shuffle third generation and fourth generation cannot be synced due to an unknown error minus 244. So if you're the owner and user of an old third or fourth generation iPod shuffle and you've been having issues uh, with Mac OS in your syncing, getting that error, Apple is going to address it. And I just find that amazing considering that the iPod shuffle was discontinued six years ago back in 2017 so really really cool on apple to continue to support ipods i think i've even plugged in not too long ago my uh ipod video and uh, it still syncs i can still move music over to it it still works with the very latest version of mac os and you know again that's incredible considering that that model needed itunes and how long has it been since we haven't had itunes yeah it's really really cool i know i'm not alone there's a lot of you out there who still use and uh, love their old ipods so again really cool to see apple continuing to support that device even though uh, many many folks have sort of moved on but with that, that is going to do it for the news for this week. Before we move on, I do want to take a quick moment and thank my show sponsor, and that is ZocDoc. And I have to be kind of honest with you, I am not really the greatest person uh, often when it comes to my own medical care. A lot of times I kind of put things off. I'll be having an issue. I'll not want to kind of deal with it or go into the doctor. I wait a little bit longer than I probably should. And I think I'm like a lot of us in that one of the reasons is I hate the whole process of trying to find a good doctor and one that can kind of see me in a timely fashion. I get really frustrated when I go in and I want to make an appointment and I can't get in to see my doctor. And that's why... I use and like ZocDoc. ZocDoc is a free app where you can find amazing doctors and book appointments online. And we're talking about booking appointments with thousands of top-rated patient-reviewed doctors and specialists. You can even filter specifically for ones who take your insurance, are located near you, and treat almost any condition that you're searching for. Another thing that I really appreciate about ZocTalk is that all their doctors have reviews from real patients. And this really helps me narrow in on somebody who's going to be potentially a good fit for me. And, and if it turns out they're not, I can go back and find another doctor on ZocDoc quickly and easily and, uh, you know, book an appointment. Plus, if I want to see a doctor quickly, and this is kind of key for me, the average wait time to see a doctor booked on ZocDoc is between 24 and 48 hours. That's it. And sometimes you can even score same-day appointments. Plus, booking an appointment in the app is super, super easy. It takes just a few taps. You can do it right there. So no having to get on the phone and listen to bad hold music only to find out that you can't get an appointment for weeks. 
Go to ZocDoc.com slash MattCast and download the ZocDoc app for free and then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's ZocDoc.com slash MattCast, ZocDoc.com slash MattCast. And a big thank you to ZocDoc for their support of the show. On a recent show, you may remember we've been having some discussion about Apple HomeKit and specifically some of the new Matter thread support kind of stuff. And just to remind you, the gist of the conversation was that since Apple released their updates in HomeKit to support Matter and Thread, that it feels like they haven't really given much additional attention or brought any enhancements really at least publicly, to HomeKit. You know, HomeKit was not even really addressed or mentioned very much at this year's Worldwide Developer Conference. It wasn't kind of one of those key features. So the question came up, and I think rightly so, was, is Apple sort of letting HomeKit languish? Is this another place where Apple kind of pioneers this great technology only to sort of let it wither on the vine a little bit. Um, you know, another great example of this is what happened with QuickTime, or some might even argue is going on with Siri, although we did get some nice enhancements and updates coming to Siri, uh, talked about at Worldwide Developer Conference. So I brought this question to the community, and I did get some great feedback from MacCast community member Robert, who is actually a smart home technology specialist and obviously an Apple fan. Um, and he says this, he thinks that in his view, HomeKit for Apple is still probably more of a hobby than a full product line. Um, I can see where he's coming from on that. I'm not sure I 100% agree. I mean, they've pretty heavily promoted HomeKit in the early days, I think they struggled with adoption for some of the technology reasons. And I think that's why Matter and Thread support are coming and they're trying to open up the platform a little bit more. But what's interesting is as they open up the platform a bit more, they seem to be doing a little bit less. So I think that leads to some of that confusion. And maybe that's where this idea that Apple is just kind of playing around with things and this is still a hobby comes to play. I think from Robert's perspective too, he's more immersed in the professional side of the business. And, you know, these technologies have been around for a really, really long time. And it does feel like Apple's more dabbling and not really diving into the deep end when it comes to some of the underlying technologies. But getting back to some of his points that I think are valid and very valid is he claims one of the biggest challenges with HomeKit is Wi-Fi and the state of Wi-Fi networks, especially in homes. Um, the system really needs Wi-Fi that is robust and reliable. And a lot of homes, in a lot of homes, that's not always the case. So if you have sort of foibles and fumbles with your wireless network or any kind of issues that can throw these products off. It can also cause, you know, scheduled tasks and, and sort of automations to not run properly. And I think that leads to a lot of frustration. So he also mentions that Apple really hasn't helped the situation by discontinuing their own line of networking products. You know, Apple got rid of airport and airport was a really great technology. I loved my airport router. It was probably one of the most reliable ones that I'd ever had. Um, I did switch. And I think I talked about this on an episode um, after Apple discontinued airport over to Orbi uh, from Netgear. And my Orbi network has been actually really, really good. And I don't really have too many issues with it. But again, all of this goes back to affect what's going on with HomeKit. And so that was kind of some of his thoughts on where some of the issues might you know, be and why it feels a little bit like Apple is maybe abandoning, not abandoning the technology, but not really uh, promoting or really enhancing the technology in, in recent years. Um, but another part of the question was, you know, what can someone who has heavily invested in HomeKit do to kind of help with some of these issues surrounding reliability and maybe do a little bit more with their HomeKit network, specifically in terms of automations and, and those sorts of things. And for that, it kind of does come back to your network and specifically which device is being used as your primary HomeKit hub. And for that, Robert recommends that you use an Apple TV 
with an Ethernet connection, if at all possible. And that will help with some of the reliability. You know, you can also use HomePods as your HomeKit hub, but all of those from the original mini to the second generation and the original HomePod, those only have Wi-Fi as a possibility. And just in general, I would say uh, for home networking, the more stuff that you can get on a wired network versus a Wi-Fi network, the better. So I try to, you know, wire in anything I possibly can. It gets difficult if you don't have a home that's sort of pre-wired with really good, you know, uh, Ethernet. And uh, adding that can be a little bit expensive or tricky. Um, but if you have the ability to do that, um, you know, that's obviously the best way to go to get the most uh, reliable network and also the fastest network still. Um but he does say that uh, some of the emerging products from with HomeKit that are leveraging some of the thread technologies are showing promise uh, as a more a more reliable way to link devices wirelessly. But you know it is still very early days, and so we need to kind of keep an eye on that. But it's showing promise, but and potentially getting better. But you know. Again, if you can go wired, that's going to be a little bit better way to go. And then he says, if you're tech savvy and really want to deep dive and address some of the current HomeKit issues, um, uh, Robert says that uh, many more advanced prosumer HomeKit users have been able to use HomeKit in Siri for interactive voice and manual control of their smart home devices, but they're using another automation system like home assistant which is an open source solution to kind of control a lot of the automation routines and home assistant uh, uses yaml yet another markup language to do a lot of the configuration and setup so it's a little bit trickier you know it's not as much plug and play as you get with HomeKit. but he says it does really let you dive into automation features that are in his opinion vastly superior to HomeKit's native commands. So if you do want to dive in deeper, there are ways to do that. So that's one thing that you might want to look into. And then another, one of the other questions that we had from the previous show was uh, just resources for diving deeper into HomeKit. And off, Robert did offer some great recommendations there too. And I'll have links to these in the show notes at mattcast.com. But he said, there's a YouTube channel that you can check out, uh, Eric Wielander. Hopefully I'm not mutilating his name. Um, he's also an iOS developer, um, but uh, he has a YouTube channel where he covers a lot of HomeKit technologies and HomeKit products, so you might want to check that out. Um, he also recommends applications from the developer Aaron Pierce over at Pierce Media. Um, I've used some of Aaron's apps, and they're really great. Uh, one of my favorites, and I think it was a thing of the moment, uh, probably at some point was HomePass, which lets you store and log all of your HomeKit device codes. So all those codes that you have to scan in, you know, those little HomeKit numbers um, that often get lost. Some people just write them down on a, on a notebook or a piece of paper. You can throw that in HomePass, sync it with iCloud, all that sort of stuff. That, so that's really cool. He has HomeCam for managing your cameras. There's a logging application. There's a bunch of great little tools and applications related to HomeKit uh, that are available from Aaron Pierce. But even better, he also runs a Slack channel called HomeKit Talk uh, that you can join and you can discuss and get help uh, with HomeKit from other HomeKit users. So that's another resource that you might want to check out. And then finally, uh, and this one's really cool, he mentions an, an app called Controller for HomeKit from Aces. And this has a ton of features for doing things like advanced automations. But one of the killer features in here is a backup and restore functionality for your HomeKit setup. And this is one of the major frustrations with some of the issues with HomeKit is if you've ever had a lot of HomeKit devices, you know they take a very long time to, I shouldn't say very long time, it's all relative, but you know, you take time to configure them. And over time, you build up a number of devices. So you name them, you add them to your network, you set up your automations, you do all that sort of stuff. And it takes time and that time adds up and you've invested that time and effort in getting everything just right and just perfect and then you have some issue with your home cat and you get to the point where you need to reset everything 
right? And then you lose all that settings. You lose all that, it's like starting from scratch. I mean, Apple doesn't have a built-in way to back up and restore that stuff, but this application brings that functionality. So I thought that was really cool. Um, I've kind of, in my new place, not I don't have as much home automation in HomeKit as I used to have uh, in my old house, but if I get back into it, I will definitely be looking at this app. So there's some great tips, tricks, hints, and software recommendations from a member of our community. And a big thank you to Robert for providing that feedback. I want to kind of revisit a listener question that came up and something that we covered a little bit back in April. And the reason I'm doing this is because it's come up again from another member of our community, this time Joe. And what's going on is Joe is currently on a 2018 MacBook Air i5 with uh, 16 gigs of RAM and was checking how much RAM he was using on a regular basis and noticed it was around 14 gigabytes. And Joe is kind of in the market potentially for a new machine and asks this natural question, which is, quote, I'm planning on buying a new M2 MacBook Pro base model with two terabytes of storage within the next week. I've heard the old metrics of RAM required are out the window with the new architecture. Is it good to have extra RAM or does the new way of doing things make it not so important? I'm not doing video or audio production, but usually have a lot of apps open like Excel, Word, Safari, Mail, and so on. My choices are 16 or 32 gigabytes. I won't say cost is not important, but I can't afford it if I need 32 gigabytes. So this is a very valid and now common question, especially since Apple really redid the architecture with the new M-Series processors. They have this new unified memory architecture, and it's created a lot of confusion, especially for a lot of us old timers. Uh, And it's really around memory and RAM. And the core of the issue is that it used to kind of be a blanket statement that the more RAM, the better. And that's now not necessarily always the case. And just to review, what really has changed and really makes the difference is kind of a combination of things. Uh, With the new processors, the memory and CPU are now wrapped up all in the same package. And what this does and the advantage that it brings is it means that you have very low latency, high bandwidth access to memory that you didn't have previously. Another big technology change is the inclusion of integrated SSD storage or solid state storage that also offers extremely high throughput. So things like memory swapping uh, become a lot less of an issue. And then layered on top of that, because Apple has full control over the hardware and software from the chip to the boards, to the SS, you know, the entire design end to end, along with the, the operating system, Mac OS, it's been highly tuned and optimized to take advantage of this new memory system and memory architecture and do that very, very efficiently, especially when you have a lot of apps open and things going on in the background. So Apple can move stuff out of memory and swap it in and out very, very quickly, very, very efficiently, all of these things. And so what that all boils down to is that for many, many users and for many, many applications, having extra RAM or having additional RAM that you might normally have needed in the past is far less of an issue. So I say less of an issue, though, and I want to be very clear about this, not no issue. There are operations and instances where having more RAM is still going to be very, very important. And it generally comes down to very large, intense operations, say 4K or 8K video editing, operating on very, very large data sets or very, very large images, you know, places where more RAM is always going to be better. If you if you think about it as, you know, what you're doing now, if you have a single application that's going to be exceeding that available memory usage for some reason, 
you're going to want to have more physical memory. So if you're loading stuff that is larger than 16 gigabytes into memory, yeah, you're absolutely going to want to have more physical memory. You're not going to have to want to rely on something like the SSD, even though the SSDs are, you know, integrated and very, very fast, right? But if you're like Joe and the case is, I just want to have a lot of applications open, um, but those apps are not RAM intensive, then you're likely going to be fine with something like the stock configuration of 16 gigabytes. Because you have to remember that Apple is managing this stuff very efficiently in the background. And even though you have a lot of apps open, they're not putting that load, that pressure on your RAM usage. So I hope that kind of helps, again, clarify things a little bit. Um, there are some other considerations though, and I think I brought these up in that episode too, in terms of getting more RAM, if you can afford it. Um, one of the biggest ones in my opinion is longevity of your device. So if you're the type of person that's only upgrading your Mac every five to 10 years, and some people honestly only buy a new Mac every 10 years, then you might want to consider buying more RAM up front because it's hard to say what's going to happen in the future. And also with the current architecture, you can't just add more RAM later like we could back in the day, right? So you're kind of stuck. Um, it'll also help potentially with resale value, although I think that's becoming less and less of an issue um, and some other factors. So, you know, if you just like having a lot of RAM and can't afford it, and want to buy that up front? Yeah, you totally can. But, you know, more and more, if you look at reviews, you look at real world usage with this new architecture, people, a lot of people are finding that they can get away now with less RAM than they had in the past. Again, not everybody. If you're doing very intense stuff, you know, if you're a really high-end pro, you're doing a lot of 3D stuff, you're doing video, you're doing audio at really, really high levels, um, then, you know, again, your mileage may vary and you might want to consider sort of maxing out that RAM still. But again, hope that helps things. And if you have other thoughts and opinions around this topic, uh, please share them with the community. Shoot me an email, send me an audio comment, maccast at gmail.com. Now here's another thing that we covered way, way, way back in, I think, 2019, and it's sort of resurfaced. So again, I think it's worth revisiting. We often can forget about these things. Rick sent me an email and recently noticed that he has over 30 folders in his uh, users folder, shared folder on his Mac that are labeled relocated items. And he says, what is this? Why is it happening? And how do I clean these things up? Um, there's actually an Apple support article about this. I will link to it in the show notes at maccast.com. Also, if you look inside those folders and you probably have them on your system, I noticed when I went in after getting this email, I think I had uh, half a dozen or so of these. Um, but inside that folder, there will be a PDF that explains things. And it says, quote, during the last Mac OS upgrade or file migration, some of your files couldn't be moved to their new location. This folder contains these files. And what this is, is that every once in a while, Apple will kind of change some of the locations and permissions on where software applications can store and save files. Often, most often, I think it's kind of configuration and setup files and stuff like that stuff at the operating system level. And they usually do this for, you know, security reasons. So they're locking down the system more. Um, I can't remember the last time they did this, but they kind of changed some of the default uh, locations where you normally would have stored configuration files if you're using, um, stuff at the, you know, at kind of low levels. So for me, often what I tend to see is configuration files for things that I've installed via the command line for my web development work. It tends to be less of things that are applications. And uh, typically uh, the relocated items again happen when Apple makes these security changes. And so if you've installed a piece of software uh, chances are like just standard software using a software installer and you're running your software updates and stuff like that. Chances are that the app developer has already addressed any changes that Apple has made and just moved their files to the proper location. But these old files can kind of get left behind in their old location. So when the software update runs, it sees these and goes, oh, I don't 
really have permissions anymore to put these files where they were originally. Um, I'm not just going to delete them though, because they might be configurations or things that you actually want or need. Like in my case, it would be things like SQL database configurations or web configurations or something like that. And uh, so what they do is rather than just deleting them, they pull them out, they put them in this uh, user shared folder in these relocated items so that you can have an opportunity to review them, recover them, do whatever you want. Now, again, most of the time, it's going to be addressed by the software developer. They're probably files that you no longer need on your computer. Um, and you can usually safely delete them without any consequence. But I would definitely just review them uh, for any apps related to files in the relocated items folder. Um, and the number one thing to do would be like, look at what the app is and then just launch that app, run that app and make sure that it's functioning the way you would expect uh, before you actually delete these files. But, you know, if everything's working properly, you probably can safely ignore them. Just delete these files, clean up your system. They don't take up a lot of space. Like I said, they can build up over time. But Rick, that's what they are. Um, so again, I would review them, make sure you don't need them anymore, and then just clean them up. You probably don't have to worry about them too much. And then finally, for this week, I have a really cool thing of the moment for you. It is the iPhone mount with MagSafe for Mac desktops and displays from Belkin. Yeah, I know. Nice, short product name, right? At least it's very descriptive. You have, you have an immediate knowledge of exactly what this is. It is an iPhone mount that uses MagSafe that is for your Mac desktop and displays. And the reason I picked this product up was uh, I was recently able to upgrade my work M1 at MacBook Pro to Mac OS Ventura. Yeah, you know, it takes them about a year to, to get it approved, but my IT department approved it. And that now gave me access to be able to use the continuity camera feature with my iPhone. So I can now use my iPhone 14 Pro as my Mac's webcam. And what's really cool about this is it gives you access to effects like the ability to use center stage studio lighting and desktop view. So a lot of those really cool features that are in the built-in camera, and I know I could use them with the built-in camera, but I use my Mac in clamshell mode with a couple of external displays. And so I had been using this really cheap um, Chinese webcam that my IT department gave me and it was fine. I mean, the quality was okay, but it, it wasn't, it wasn't great. And, uh, when I had the ability to then use my iPhone camera, it was amazing. It really like upped my webcam game. And I can use that not only with FaceTime, but also with Zoom, which we use at work on a daily basis. And uh, so I played around with it, but I was having to just kind of prop my iPhone up on my desktop. And I really wanted something a little bit better than that. So uh, I knew Belkin made these great uh, MagSafe iPhone mounts. And so I ordered one up and it is awesome. It gives you the ability to attach your iPhone over the top of your display and uh, it has some angle adjustment. So you can kind of adjust it up and down. It doesn't provide direct power, um, but you can just plug in a lightning cable uh, to the side of your iPhone. So that works fine. Uh, so it doesn't provide any kind of MagSafe power or anything like that, which would be a nice addition. Um, but it works great to just plug it in. Uh, you can use the mount in landscape or portrait orientation. I use it mostly in landscape. I don't think I've really tried um, the portrait mode, but you can kind of uh, adjust it so that you can do uh, portrait. And um, it's really, really cool. It has some great weight to it. It is metal, uh, not plastic. Um, I'm able to easily connect and disconnect my phone uh, without any issues. And that's really important because that is likely my only complaint about using an iPhone as your webcam is that you do have to detach it when you want to use your phone again. So I'm having to throughout the day, you know, when I go into a meeting, attach my iPhone and then detach it. And obviously you can't use the iPhone at the same time as you're using it as a webcam. 
it connects all wirelessly and pretty seamlessly. It shows right up, seems to work really well with the operating system. So I absolutely love it. And new bonus, and I don't know why I didn't think about this before, is this feature is also supported on older Macs um, like my 16-inch MacBook Pro with an Intel processor. So I can now use all the cool features like center stage, studio lighting, desktop view, and all that with my other Mac as well. Now, that's a laptop, so they make a different mount for laptops. So I'll probably be ordering that for my notebook, but they're not too expensive. Uh, the price is US $40 for this one. So kind of moderately priced, but like I said, the quality is very, very good. The build quality is good. Um, and it's a great little product from Belkin. So I really, really love it. Uh, again, it's the iPhone mount with MagSafe for Mac desktops and displays. I'll have a link to it in the show notes at maccast.com. And with that, that is going to do it for the show for this week like to quickly thank a couple of our show supporters. Bandwidth for the MacCast is provided by Cashfly. You can find them at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com. And all advertising on the MacCast is handled by Backbeat Media. They are at BackbeatMedia.com. As always, I love hearing from you. If you have a comment, a question, something you'd like to hear covered on a future episode of the MacCast, you can send your emails and audio comments to MacCast at gmail.com. You're also welcome to call in on the listener hotline, that phone number, 281-622-4269, 281-MAC-IM9, and you can leave a voicemail there. If you need show notes, links to anything that I talked about on this or any other episode of the MacCast, you'll find those on the website, and that's at maccast.com. And finally, if you want to follow me on social media, you can find me on Twitter, twitter.com slash maccast. You can check out the MacCast Facebook page over at facebook.com slash the maccast, or find me on Instagram, just maccast on Instagram. But with that, that will do it for now. Until next time, I will talk to you all again real soon. Mm-hmm.